Mark 2, 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Father, we come to you and we adore you because you are a God who is sovereign over heaven and earth. Father, it is you who is moving and working in creation to bring forth your end according to your means. And we recognize your fingerprints and your handiworks all throughout creation. And we adore you because you're a God who is sovereign and you're a God who is good, working and moving in our lives. But Father, we confess that even though we have the conviction that you are sovereign and that you are good, when we see the images on our television, the brokenness of our world, the shootings that have become all too common, lives snuffed out and broken, from Columbine to yesterday in El Paso in Ohio. Father, we confess that our world is broken, that the hearts and minds and bodies of men and women, men and women have been twisted and destroyed by sin, that they find that the only answer is to attack and lash out in rage and angst and anger and to murder and kill and destroy. And we confess as we look at this, we turn to our politicians and we turn to our leaders and they have no answers. Their legislation, their excuses, their words are meaningless. They're empty and they're devoid of truth. Father, we come to you and we look heavenly. We look towards the God who is sovereign and working and good. And though we do not understand, we trust you. Father, in the midst of the darkness that grows deeper and stronger is the light of truth and the light of love that cannot be overcome by the darkness. Though the hearts and the minds of this world grow more chaotic and darker and more evil and, and selfish and innocent people are, are hurt and broken. Father, the only answer is, to the, is the gospel. The gospel to change hearts and minds and for the church to reach out in compassion, not in scorn and with I told you so, not to turn to counterfeit idols of our things that we cling to, and our own power and strength, 
but we turn outward and we turn upward to the one who has promised that there would be a day when the swords will be turned to plowshares and the spears will be torn to to, uh, pruning hooks. We will have no use for the rudiments of war because peace has come and we long for that day and we pray that we work to transform our culture from within and we point them towards Jesus Christ who is the only catalyst of change. Father, I pray, though our hearts are becoming calloused and desensitized to the gun violence and the evil hearts and the uh, mental instability of many of our neighbors and friends and even our own hearts, Father, I pray that you would protect us and that if the violence comes close to our hearts and to our families and to our church, we would be a catalyst and a voice and have compassion on our brothers and sisters and our friends and our family who do not know Christ and they have no answer. Therefore, they're, hate, they're hopeless and they're bitter and they're enraged. And I pray that we would not hold them at arm's length, but we would have compassion and that we would seek to give them the only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but we belong in body and soul to Jesus Christ. And in him we trust and we pray. We pray that the spirit would speak to us through the proclamation of his word. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. We continue in the book of Mark as we go through this morning just a few verses. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 17, and we begin to see at a point in Jesus' ministry where he's beginning to find uh, an uh, opposition. In chapter 1, he was great fame and and great uh, people, crowds were bringing them to do, and they continue to do that, bring their sick and their lame to just to be touched by Jesus and to be healed by Jesus. But now as Jesus' fame grows, so are the cynics and those, the naysayers and the doubters have come to find out what this young upstart from Galilee is all about. And they doubt his uh, methods and they question his wisdom. Now, to be able to understand, as Jesus calls Levi to follow him, I want to ask you this question. If you were to start a... Uh, a grassroots movement that was meant to be proclaimed to all the nations of this world that was a life-bringing, love-infusing, joy-making movement, who would you choose to represent and to spearhead that? Would it be someone, a, a charismatic leader with charm and debonair to get your message out? Would it be a passionate visionary who inspires the imagination with things that we didn't think were possible in the in before? 
wouldn't be a spectacular scholar with mind-blowing intellect? Or would it be a strong leader who exudes courage and strength in the face of danger and opposition? You may even want to get a larger crowd of people. Maybe instead of just one leader and one visionary, that you would get a whole group, maybe 12 of them, and that you would start something in science, in medicine, in athletics, in business, and get the best of all the people together to be able to make this movement to bring love and joy and truth throughout the world. Now, you might choose uh, someone like MLK or Steve Jobs or Einstein or Captain America. Who wouldn't go, who wouldn't go with one of the Avengers, right? Uh, but ultimately, you probably, nobody would say, if I was going to start uh, this movement, I would get a villainous traitor who sells out his own people and is hated by everyone. You probably wouldn't say, you know who I would get to start my movement is Gordon Gecko from the infamous villain from the movie Wall Street back in, I think, 86 or 87. I was probably, I was too young, I was not allowed to watch the movie, but he is so infamous in his, in his saying, greed is good. Would you choose him to start your movement? Or maybe a real life character like Bernie Madoff. As Time says, quite possibly the greatest swindle job in the history of the world. He literally stole 17 billion, that's with a B, dollars from his various investors. You would never start with anybody like Madoff or Gecko. You would go with somebody that has integrity and somebody has vision or intellect or courage. Like Captain America. Yes, son, I'm glad he's paying attention. You wouldn't start with a traitor who sold out his country and his people for personal greedy gain. But that's what Jesus exactly did. Jesus is starting a movement that's going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth to bring his message and his teaching and his kingdom. And who does he choose? He chooses Levi, a rotten, dirty scoundrel of a tax collector. And I want you to know this morning that following Jesus is not simply what somebody believes. That's important, but what somebody does. It's not just what somebody believes, but what somebody does. And we do this, we look at this as we break this up, that we are called, followers of Jesus, are called to renounce sin's corruption. We're called to renounce sin's corruption and to embrace Christ's remedy. Embrace Christ's remedy. You got that, Betsy? Good. Good. I want to see your notes, son. We begin in verses 13 and 14 to renounce sin's corruption. We renounce sin's corruption. Jesus, verse 13, is the scandal of the call of Jesus. He was given that he called an unworthy candidate to follow him. Somebody who was a dirty, rotten scoundrel. Notice verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, 
We also understand this most likely to be Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. If a first century, from some, somebody from the first century was reading Mark's gospel, which they did, they probably would gasp at Jesus, the scandal of Jesus' grace, that he would dare to call a tax collector to be his disciple. Because tax collectors were traitors in the first century, people who sold out their countrymen in order to get great wealth and great power. If we were to try to find a modern-day equivalent to what a tax collector was like, it would be very similar to the moles or to the informants of uh, that of communist regimes or um, the Nazi Germany who uh, ratted out or betrayed the Jews and Jewish sympathizers to the government and that they were snatched away and, and murdered and, and sent to concentration camp, camps. You, we naturally love the people like Corey Ten Boom and Anne Frank, people that were seeking to do the right thing and protect the Jews and that. And then we naturally hate the moles and the informants who reported them to the government and ultimately, in the case of Anne Frank, who lost their lives in the concentration camps and Corey Ten Boom, who lost most of her family. Tax collectors were the equivalent of the moles and the informants in the first century. They were hated and they were despised by the Jews. And Mark tells us that in, this was not just a happenstance where, uh, where Matt or Levi came across the path of Jesus. Jesus sought Levi while Levi was sitting at the tax booth with the offer and the call to discipleship. Now, to give you a, a background, in the first century, the poll taxes and the, and the property taxes were collected by the Romans themselves. But what they would do is they would contract local civilians who would bid for the right to own the tax booth where they could collect the, um, the various taxes of the people. Things like customs, tariffs, tolls. Everybody loves tolls, right? In, in uh, imposts as the goods would enter into a local area and leave a local area. Some scholars, and I think it's a very plausible argument, believe Matthew, or Levi, I've been doing this all week, Levi um, probably collected the taxes for the fishermen's in Galilee. We know that the first four disciples that Jesus has already called are Peter and James, John and Andrew, who were the fishermen. And they would have been well aware of, of Levi because he might have said, listen, the government wants 2% for every fish that you catch, but Levi is going to add an, a handling fee of an extra 8%. He's going to take 10% of the value of the fish, give the Roman government 2%, and then he's going to line his pocket with the other 8%, and the Romans don't care as long as they get the money. Some scholars say found out thousands of dollars that, that could be made. Poor men could become rich men quickly by being tax collectors if they were willing to betray the country, be greedy in their dealings with the people. You can see how quickly people hated the tax collectors. How many of you get ex excited on April 15th? Not a lot of you. 
Um, and because you don't want to pay your taxes, but then you also don't want to get ripped off by people who are trying to collect your tax money. Now, this hatred for the tax collectors seeped into not only the, the, just their feelings towards tax collectors, but their religion. The, the religious traditions of, were, were tainted by their hatred. Tax collectors were disqualified to be a judge or to be a witness in court. Um, they were expelled from their local synagogue and they were considered the disgrace from their family. Even touching a tax collector, what would make a person unclean in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, they would rather you literally snuggle with a leper than touch a tax collector. And I don't believe they use the word snuggle. Um, that's a very biblical term of the 21st century. But you would rather touch a leper than to associate with a tax collector because they were so detestable. Even there were extremist Jews, the zealots. And some of you know the 12 dis the disciples. There was a zealot in one of the disciples who said that... Uh, um, Paying taxes to the Romans and collecting taxes was uh, equal and tantamount to rebellion and treason against God himself. So with that understanding, when these simple words Mark records that Jesus looked at Levi and said, follow me, it would have been appalling and scandalous because good people don't associate with those people. Moral people have nothing to do with them. You can probably think of a group of people, those people, the likes of them, where we, in our own culture, don't think somebody else is worthy of the love, of the respect, of the compassion of God no less ourselves. This was an unworthy candidate to, that, to be able to be called to forsake sin's corruption, and it was an unnatural response that Jesus was calling Levi to make. Mark doesn't go into the details about what he told Levi. There's likely there was talking and Levi knew what was going on. He doesn't tell you what Levi knew about, the, about Jesus and the other disciples. He doesn't talk about the internal struggle that he considers his call to leave the tax booth. He's paid a lot for this position. He hadn't made his profit back yet. He still had a few more months. His contract was expiring. Why would he, why would he leave now to follow Jesus? That'd be silly. I wouldn't have this. And he doesn't tell you his pro list, and he doesn't tell you his con list. Why is that? He simply says at the end of verse 14, and Levi rose and followed Jesus. Mark doesn't want you to know the details about the one who was called. He wants you to know the nature of the radical call to follow Jesus. A call, the call to follow Jesus as his disciple is not natural to us. The word follow is always used in the Gospels to describe the disciples of God and not his enemies. To follow, especially in the book of Mark, is to carry a load, a burden, a responsibility that you have to follow Jesus. It is synonymous to faith in here. 
and it describes the proper response of those who are called to follow Jesus. They hear the call of Jesus, and they follow him, and they bear the burden and they bear the consequences of following Jesus, because it is going to be shown by the, the path that Jesus walks and he calls his disciples to walk, that following Jesus, it comes at great risk and great responsibility. Later on, we'll see down the road in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, about the calling of what it means to follow Jesus. Because time and time again, Mark is about following Jesus and about being the disciple of him. And Jesus tells them explicitly in, in a, a vivid language what it costs to follow Jesus. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, follow me, be my disciples, be associated with me, no longer be on the outside watching, being in the vicinity of Jesus, treating Jesus like a, the, the newest trend in the 24-hour news cycle. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That's big. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow him. We think of things like this. We think of change. They would have thought about the execution tool of the Romans. If you contextualize it, let them take up their electric chair. Let them take up their lethal injection and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. To follow Jesus, you must surrender your right to define your identity, to determine your destiny, to master your fate, and to captain your soul. As humans, that does not come naturally. As, as all of creation does, when danger comes, what happens? We fight or we flight. We try to preserve ourselves so we get out of dodge or we fight against what's coming. To follow Jesus, you must stop fighting against him and stop running from him. Matthew couldn't follow Jesus. He couldn't be a disciple of Jesus until he left the comfort and security and corruption of the tax booth to follow Jesus. He couldn't say yes I'm a, I'm a disciple of Jesus, that's 2% for the government, 8% for me, and you know, it's Tuesday, so it's 14% for me. He couldn't no longer do that. In Ocean Park, we cannot follow Jesus until we renounce the comfort and the corruption of our sin. And every single one of us struggles with something different. We're not all the same but we have the same heart that, it, that rebels against God, but our idols come out in different ways. Rather than finding our identity and our satisfaction and our security and His goodness, His beauty, His wisdom, and His design and His identity for His life, we find functional saviors, all different things. It may be substances, it may be relationship, it may be power, it may be all different types of areas where we try to find safety and security to fight against our fears and the things that we think will do us harm. And to follow Jesus, we must lay those things down at the foot of the cross because we cannot turn to Jesus until we forsake sin's corruption. Dr. Scott Sunquist 
and his book that he just released called Why Church? Why do we go to church? It's an introduction for somebody who'd never been to church before. Why do we do this? And in his section, it says, come. We come to church. And in going to church or coming to church, we are leaving something behind. And he says this, we must acknowledge that we are not turning away from much, that we are turning away from much of our society and our local cultural norms when we turn to Jesus. We are renouncing the devil who works in tempting us for the love of money, for sinful passions and our oversex to society, and egoism, another word for pride. We are renouncing all these powers and turning to trust the powerful Lord of the universe who took our sins upon himself. And every week we declare when we leave our homes and we come to church that we need the Almighty God and we don't need the comforts and securities and values and priorities of our kingdom because we renounce the corruption and the sin of this world and the corruption that, that dwells deep in the recesses of our hearts. The cost to follow Jesus is not to pay him lip service or give him tacit approval from a distance as you endorse his kingdom from afar. The cost of following Jesus is the call to renounce sin's corruption. For following Jesus is not simply what a person believes. I believe in sinfulness I believe of this world. I believe in the holiness of God. I believe Jesus came, but it's what person does is that they leave the corruption of their sin and they embrace the remedy that's only found in Jesus. To the call to embrace Christ's remedy begins with Jesus' love for the unrighteous. Notice in verses 15 to 17, Jesus begins to eat with sinners and tax collectors. And there are many in uh, society that recognize you don't have to be a Christian to recognize that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We all looked on our televisions yesterday and we see in two separate places people have been died innocently shopping and working and moving in their lives. Our world is broken. Governments, businesses, families, our bodies, our minds, they're broken. And people are quick to recognize that the source of that is sin. These things are wrong. And it's corrupted our world, and it's very easy to be tangled in this insidious web of sin. What a tangled web we weave, and people know that. Yet rather than turning from sin to embrace the promises of God in Christ, they turn from sin and they turn to self-righteousness. They strive in self-righteousness by their own strength and their own power and their own ability to be righteous and to be moral and to be good. Something which is not possible for mankind because only God is holy and good, and like the sun that burns in our solar system, the best and strongest of us, as we get closer to the sun, will immediately be eaten away, and I don't even know the scientific term, but we will be destroyed because we are corruptible and we cannot face the awesome power that the sun possesses because we are mortal, corruptible people. 
And as we get close to the holiness of God, we realize we, be, we are consumed. Yet self-righteousness, and it's the pride that often it's the religious people that we see it most in, that countless generations have spurned the perfect righteousness of Christ that he offers by faith to, um, for a toxic substitute that slowly poisoned the soul and leads to eternal damnation. And that's self-righteousness. That's when somebody says that's a very judgmental person. What they're saying is that person is very self-righteous. They think they've got it together and you don't got it together and you have to live by my standard. And if you don't meet my standard, you're a mess and you're sinful and you're not as good. Probably the most notorious example of self-righteousness is the Pharisees who spurned sin and pursued self-righteousness. Now, the Pharisees were a rigid sect of Jewish leaders who distinguished themselves by a zealous desire to observe the law of God. And that on its own, that's not a bad thing. As, as believers, as Christians, we should seek to be holy. God tells us to be holy for I am holy, but not on the basis of to earn acceptance before God, but because Christ has saved us, he has brought, taken us out from what we deserve, then we want to honor him and reflect his holiness and his glory. But the Pharisees were trying to be the separated one and not allow the corruption and sin of the people and their uncleanliness to come unto them. And so they had a strict interpretation of the law according to their traditions. They devoted themselves to purity. And they refused to associate with anyone who is considered unclean or impure or dirty because they were afraid that they would be made unclean. For example, they were like doctors and nurses who locked themselves in the middle of a hospital and locked the doors because they fear sick people with germs and diseases will come in the hospital and infect them. When the reality is, the picture of Jesus is Jesus is the doctor, the great physician who goes and finds the sick and the needy and the dying and he brings them to the hospital and he makes them whole with his righteousness and his cleanliness. The, the Pharisees were the opposite. Lock the doors, put Purell all over me, get these people out of here because they're going to make me sick. They spurned and they built fences around the law of God and they shunned any contract, especially eating a meal with a sinner, with, with somebody that's dirty, because sinners and tax collectors were undeserving of the grace of God and they were unrighteousness. Why? Because they didn't meet their religious standard of moralism and holiness. Unfortunately, Many of our churches are full of the same type of Pharisees who have spurned the gospel for our long list of do's and don'ts. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with girls who toot, root toot, toot, root toot, toot. And we have lists and then we get with other people and make longer lists and said, do you have to do this, this, and this? All the while ignoring Christ who says, follow me, trust my righteousness, Instead, they trust their own and their own selves. 
The Pharisees saw Jesus' association with these unrighteous people as downright scandalous. Notice verse 15. As Jesus reclined at the table of his house, uh, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. There are many who followed him, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus, the anointed one of Son of God, is having is sharing fellowship meal with unclean outcasts of society while the self-righteous Pharisees stand outside in their cleanliness, scorning and deriving this Son of God who has come to seek and save to the lost. But why were the Pharisees scorning Jesus? Wouldn't Jesus be going and saying, hey, you need to get your act together and you need to be more moral and more righteous just like the Pharisees. And he would get pluck some of these people out and make them a Pharisees and they would be holy and clean and moral too. Couldn't Jesus be the catalyst that got these people out of their sin and got them clean like the Pharisees? I believe the heart of the problem is this. The Pharisees opposed Jesus because he did not make moral repentance a precondition of his love and his acceptance. Rather, Jesus loved sinners and tax collectors, collectors as they were. Jesus sought them out and had fellowship with them and loved them before he shared the news of the gospel. The Pharisees only loved those people that would clean themselves up and adhere to their standard of righteousness and jump through their moral hoops. They said, we will love you if you meet our standards of righteousness. Jesus, however, loved the socially disreputable, the flagrant sinners, the petty criminals, the prostitutes, the gamblers, and even the Gentiles. And Jesus identified with the self-righteous, Jesus identified with people whom the self-righteous religious purists ostracized. He was a friend to sinners because he loved sinners. Now, I want some of you are breaking out in hives right now, I can tell, because um, you're like, whoa, this is, we just do what we want, Pastor Chris, right? We love everybody. No. Um, glad you asked. Jesus loved sinners, but he no way approved or he condoned their sin, uh, their sinful lifestyles, their sinful choices. He was a friend to sinners without being a friend to their sin. Ba- the basis of this is Mark 1.15. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. That is the foundation of his kingdom. True followers, as we see in Mark 8, must deny themselves, this, a.k.a. their sinful desires, whether it be um, passions, whether it be lusts, whether it be power, greed, lying, stealing, cheating, and you go down the list. Jesus called them, if you're going to follow me, you must deny those things and put those things to death. You can't do that. But he loved them first. Jesus loved the unlovable. He embraced the outcast. He touched the unclean to proclaim to them the good news that a remedy for sin's curse Um, was in their midst. Jesus didn't wait for sinners and tax collectors to approach him. He lovingly initiated contact with sinners in order to call them to follow him. And Jesus was straight to the point. 
deny yourself. But that's the way I want it. That's the way I was made. That's my desire. That's my propensity. That's my sickness. Deny yourself and follow me. Every single one of us has particular weaknesses and vulnerability. My weakness and vulnerabilities are not yours and yours are not mine, but they come from the same sinful heart that's in rebellion that does not live in account with God and is not, does not do or be what God calls us to do. And they come in all that same rotten root brings forth fruit of different varieties and all that fruit is the lust of the flesh, the fruit of the sin and the passions. And Jesus calls them to repent of those things and to follow Jesus. And if they responded to the initiation of Jesus' love by following him, they will enter the kingdom of God before the scribes and the Pharisees who ignored him because Jesus loved the unrighteous. The call to embrace Jesus' remedy started with a love for the unrighteous, and then it offered the cure, the only cure to them. Notice verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, or you could really put in here the self-righteous or the people who think they're righteous, um, but sinners. Jesus didn't come to enlighten sinners how to have moral and achieve self-righteousness. Jesus came to redeem sinners who were powerless to save themselves. He did not come to provide a self-help, but perform a search and rescue for the one sheep that was lost. Because the only remedy for the lethal, lethal poison of sin that poisons us all is the scandalous grace of Jesus Christ. Something that can't be achieved by moral proficiency, by receiving, but only by receiving and confessing our deficiency and trusting in the promises of Christ. Yet the tragedy is this, that people who are self-righteous can't see their radical inability to achieve righteousness. They can see the sin and they can see a demon and a sin under every doily. And they're really good at pointing out everybody's sin, but they have this telephone pole hanging from their eye and they cannot see it no matter how large they look because they only look past their unrighteousness and they see the unrighteousness and the sin of unclean people. Self-righteousness blinds the soul to, um, to the cure, the only cure to our corruption, which is Jesus Christ. I have a dear friend of mine who received word uh, several years ago that his wife of over 30 years um, contracted a very common form of cancer, which is survival rates are probably one of the best, and the doctors were sure they had found it in the right place and the treatment would be successful and she could continue on many years with, um, with uh, cancer-free. However, she refused the treatment because she felt she didn't trust the treatment of the doctors, so she did her own treatment. And then about eight months later, she was dead. And the husband could not convince her and he pleaded with her do something get the treatment it's your only hope it will heal you she refused and she died ocean park until we realize our inability to heal ourselves 
we will never turn to the great physician who is alone able to restore our soul. The self-righteous will continue to strive to make themselves deserving and worthy and pure, only to burn out in bitterness and cynicism when they can't do it any more. They'll crash and burn and their faith will shrivel and die. Only those who recognize their inability to cure, cure themselves will call out to the God who is able to heal them and make them whole. When they receive, they, then they will receive the only remedy for their disease, the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Ocean Park, we need to stop preaching morality and self-righteousness to those who are lost. Lost people are going to act like lost people. They're going to think like lost people. They're going to talk like lost people. They're going to have priorities of the lost world. Rather than coming with self-righteous indignation towards them, we need to pray like we prayed in Sunday school for compassion for people who are lost and they can't see the only way and cure for their soul. Trying to preach morality, do these things, follow these steps, is like throwing a cinder block to a person that's drowning. It will only bring him to the bottom faster. It will and sink them deeper into damnation. Sinners need the pursuing love of Christ that comes to them without condition and shares a meal of fellowship that they may learn and trust the only remedy for their sin, the mercy and grace of God. John Calvin said this, Jesus came to quicken the dead, to justify the guilty and the condemned, to wash those who were polluted and full of uncleanliness, to rescue the lost from hell, to clothe them with glory for his covered with shame, to renew and bless immortality those who were debased by disgusting vices. We will never think it strange that he should gather to salvation those who have been the worst of men and who have been covered with the mass of crimes. Only those who know their sin and recognize their inability will em embrace the remedy that's found in Christ. Our story is that as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, first, I guess we're not going to see it. Um, no, we're not. I, uh, first Corinthians, I want you to listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a fact. Unrighteous people will not be in heaven. Why? Because God cannot be in the presence of unrighteousness. That makes all of us, none of us are good enough to be in the presence of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor vilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. A whole laundry list of things that we're comfortable with and things that we're not comfortable with. These are sins. These, remember, all the, the, that rotten heart brings all different shoots up and all different types of sin, all varieties. And I wish it was on the board, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, the only reason any of us enjoy the eternal life is because Jesus came to us while we were yet sinners, and he loved us. 
and he washed us and he justified us. He had compassion on us when we were in our miserable state. He loved us when we were unlovable. He touched us when we were unclean. He sought us when we were outcast, that we may drink deep of the reservoir of life-giving, joy-infusing, love-overflowing grace of God. He did not wait for us to get our act together because if we're still trying to get our act together, we would never come to Jesus and we're not at Jesus yet. He didn't wait till we came to him. He came to us to provide us the only remedy for sin, the only thing that can wash away our sin and the only thing that can make us whole within nothing but the blood of Jesus. Ocean Park, to follow Jesus is to turn away from the futility of self-righteousness and embrace the only remedy for the disease and corruption of our soul, the mercy and grace of God. We don't deserve it, we didn't earn it, and we didn't want it, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He prayed as he was being murdered by um, the Romans and as he was being murdered by all of mankind. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was accomplishing salvation when we thought we were destroying him. You cannot follow Jesus from a distance. You cannot be a follower by proxy. You must repent of your sin and self-righteousness and embrace only what Jesus can give because following Jesus is not simply what a person believes, but what a person does. And they, they renounce the corruption of sin and they embrace the only hope for salvation, which is the mercy and grace of Christ. Ocean Park, to be a follower of Jesus is to not, is, is that you're not, um, it is not enough to believe that God is holy and righteous. It's not enough to believe that you're a sinner. It's not enough to feel that your brokenness and your weight of, and your misery of your sin. It's not enough to work hard at being good and stop being bad, which you cannot do, by the way. Try it. You mess up in about five minutes if you're lucky. You must repent and believe. Repent of your sin and trust the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he done. Leave the corruption of the tax booth behind and your vain attempts at self-righteousness and follow Jesus, your only hope in life and death. Again, following Jesus is not simply what a person believes, but what a person does. Ocean Park, repent and believe.